Welcome to the Lutheran History Podcast, where we cover over 500 years of Lutheranism. We hear new stories, examine old heroes of faith, and dig into the who, how, what, and why of history making. So whether you are a Lutheran seeking to understand your faith's rich roots, a history lover, or a person looking for stories of trials, tragedies, and triumphs, you'll find what you're looking for right here. Today's guest is Dr. Mark Brown, a return guest. Uh, he was our very first episode back in October, and now he's come back to talk to us about uh, the tale of two synods, his book covering the relationship and then the, the breakup, the split between the Wisconsin Synod and the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Dr. Brown, thank you for joining us again. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. So we're going to get into the details uh, throughout this episode today, but um, two questions up front just to give us uh, a heads up of what we're talking about. Uh, first, what was the purpose in writing this book? Well, the most basic purpose, pragmatically, was that I had accepted a call to teach college at Wisconsin Lutheran College, and the call letter said, if you accept this call, you obligate yourself to completing the terminal degree. And St. Louis would accept the uh, additional master's work I'd done during the summer. And uh, and then it was my second year of summer classes that I took a class on Missouri Senate history. So I was the one guy in the classroom that would always have to answer for Wisconsin and um, had to write an extra longer paper. And my advisor said, you know, there's more to this story than just what's in the official journals. If you could get to talking with people who live through it, uh, you'd get more of a story. And that's why my book features um, survey questions and responses from people who live through it. And once I got into it that far, I got caught up in the story. I'm not a preacher's kid, so I wasn't defending anybody's honor, um, which was probably a good thing in the long probably. run. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I was surprised when I was all done that uh, our publishing house would want to publish it. It's been really quite widely read, so I'm grateful for that. Yeah. Um, just a quick question, um, more from the historian writer's perspective. Did you have to rewrite your manuscript, your thesis, kind of more for the book format, or was it pretty much ready to go? Well, no, I, I didn't have to change anything for the book. Okay. And um, I suppose as dissertations go, it's a little bit more um, conversational, gossipy yeah. maybe in some senses. Um, but I only had to change one footnote, and, uh, and and I was really very happy about that. And at first, they said, "How would you like to take a lot of the footnotes out and just have it as the story?" And I said, "I think whatever's good in it is in the footnotes, so other people can follow what I found." And so they did, which I, I appreciate. Yeah, and the the format too for the book, it's nice. Uh, sometimes they, you know, they're end notes; they're in the end, and. I, I, most people I know don't bother <laughs> to flip back if they're in the end, but having yeah. it as an actual footnote, you could just glance down. I fought for that. <laughs> yeah, good. And it, yeah, yeah. You're, like you said, there's some some of the, the juicier or more interesting uh, items are right there. So yeah, that was a, a question I asked because uh, like you said, it is kind of a more of a narrative. It was very readable, even though it is a, a thesis. Um, so uh, the next, just to give our listeners uh, something to hold on to as we go on this journey with you this evening, what was your main argument or your main conclusion? Well, I think there were a couple of things that weren't very clear until I got quite a ways into the study. We're bound to think of it as a Wisconsin versus Missouri type of thing. 
And it became that, but it really was a internal civil war within the Missouri Synod over becoming more modernized, wanting to become uh, more active together with other Lutherans who are in the eastern part of the United States. And then we were drawn into the uh, civil war because we were on one certain side. It also, it was quite difficult for me to figure out really what the split was about because I graduated from seminary in 1974, which was the year of the walkout at St. Louis. And we all followed this news very carefully every week. It was on, it was on CBS Evening News and, you know, it was really a big story. And so we would tend to think that the split was over the doctrine of scripture that Missouri and particularly the Concordia Seminary was teaching that the Bible is just a human book or that it had errors or whatever. So the first, when we finally got to this in senior church history, our professor said, that isn't what it was about. It was about differences in church fellowship. And you look at the um, the minutes of, of the synod and you look at the resolution, it was about fellowship, which, okay, then I hung on to that. Then I went to graduate school 20 years later and I said to uh, my one of my readers, that my professor, Professor Frederick, said that this was about fellowship. And my reader said, I loved him. He was my ninth grade religion teacher, but frankly, he's wrong. It was really our concern about whether or not Missouri still believed the Bible was inerrant. That was, that was the reason for the split. And I came to understand that that was the issue that was kind of lurking in the bushes, so to speak. And that explains why the book is set up the way it is. It seems to end, kind of like John's gospel, it seems to end in chapter four. And then, oh, wait, there's another whole story here. Well, that's how that came about. All right. So I think the takeaway is uh, this book is almost as good as, as John's gospel. Huh? No. <laughs> <laughs> A no. very distant second. <laughs> yeah. No, thank you for that 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 point, right? Um, it is about uh, what's on paper, you know, looking at the minutes from the, the meeting with the split. Um, I haven't looked at them, but I'm sure you, you, you seem to say it was about the, the fellow issue of fellowship and that that doctrine was the official reason for uh, the split. But you, you found um, deep down uh, what, what people were really thinking about or, or what their emotions were connected to is more the word of God. Uh, mm -hmm. Is that a fair way to? Yeah. And because it was a civil war in the Missouri Synod, the war went on without us. And when Missouri had its problems at Concordia Seminary and the faculty and many of the students walked out rather than submit to individual doctrinal um, examinations, uh, Jacob Preuss, who was the president at the time, said, you know, people have a hard time understanding the doctrine of fellowship and is this the unit concept or whatever. But you tell them that Adam and Eve weren't real people and that the Bible has mistakes. That is an issue that they can grasp and, and feel even bothered by. So Missouri kind of went through its own stage of coming to that problem. And that's another whole story in itself. Yes. Um, and I had to be careful that the book wasn't all about that, but it was also about our reaction to things that were happening there. All right. Well, let's get into the, the content. Uh, we'll have that in the back of our minds, the concept of fellowship, but also the, the doctrine of the Holy Scriptures being kind of at the heart of this entire uh, event. So listeners to this podcast have heard quite a bit already about the Synodical Conference. We've explained that. I think our very first episode, we talked a bit about that. Uh, Missouri Synod, the Wisconsin Synod. But we should probably be reintroduced to both the Missouri and Wisconsin Synods, and especially their context of their relationship with one another. 
Um, so first, what were some of the major similarities and perhaps the non-doctrinal differences between these synods? Yeah, let me just preface that a bit because the first chapter of my my book really was a dissertation requirement to set the scene and talk about how the synods first started. And I would just as a little commercial plug, by all means, try to get a hold of Peter Prang and have him talk about his book about Walther wielding the sword of the spirit, because it goes into great detail about these dozens and dozens of little Lutheran groups. Have you had them already? Uh, if you haven't. We've been in communication already. So okay. Okay. Listeners well, can you know, look forward he, to that. He, he tells in great care what happens in the 1850s and 60s and all these different little synods separated by distance and by language and by leaders. Um, and that set the scene for in the 1870s, 80s, early 1900s, the, some of the synods sort of merged together and Missouri became a real large powerhouse. And this was always an issue that by numerical count, they were always the biggest and most powerful synod. Wisconsin admired Missouri, wanted to be like her in many ways, not always, but like a younger sister, always wanted to have her independence. And so we would admire each other, intermarry, teach each other's schools, but still wanted to keep our independence. And, um, but Missouri, like a big sister, was kind of independent of us in a way too. Um, they were more self-assured. Uh, there had been quite an uh, effort back when they first came to America that they had four boats and even had an archivist along, which is in interests every historian, I think. Whereas Wisconsin was much more ragtag with people kind of running away from Germany and being lost in the farms and the hills and uh, missionaries trying to find them. And as my book says, at the beginning, Wisconsin was not particularly confessional and a little bit open-minded about having church with Methodists and all that. And that, that changed um, in the first couple decades of our history. So at the beginning, you would never have imagined that Missouri and Wisconsin would have a church fellowship relationship. But by the time you got to the 1920s and 30s, the really old folks, pastors who talked with me said, we never imagined that anything could break up this close relationship that we had. But by the 1930s, there were these hints that something was changing in Missouri's outlook on things and how they treated um, whether or not it was good to be in the Boy Scouts, whether it was wise to join the military chaplaincy, which in and of themselves sound like really trivial, picky issues and weren't very popular. But there was a sense that Missouri was no longer willing to um, stand against that, but they wanted to be more accepting. And Wisconsin said, well, you were the ones that encouraged us to take this stand. And now are you changing? And it, it came to be our understanding that the issues had to do with how we observe church fellowship. So how would you characterize the kind of unofficial, not at the conference level, not through um, the schools, but just the, the social relationship between Missouri and Wisconsin for that nearly 90 years of fellowship with each other? Well, as I say, you can go, and I, and I do do this in the book a little bit, you can get a feel of it by contrasting each of the founding pa uh, pastors. Uh, Walther is very well known uh, throughout the Lutheran world and even beyond that in the American Christian world. A very powerful leader, a great speaker, organizer, set the tone for the church. Most Wisconsin members never even heard of its founder, John Milhoiser, um, who came here and was not ordained, was going to hand out tracts on railroad cars, but he had a great heart for the gospel. He died relatively young 
and did not leave an imprint on the Synod. And the, the Wisconsin Synod changed enough that Mulehäuser would not be welcome in the Wisconsin Synod by 1900 and, and wouldn't have wanted to join. And that had an effect on us, how, how our, our, our founders were not equally influential. Um, but, you know, in public, in print, we would always say that we admired each other. But at the same time, Missouri would wonder, well, why don't you just join us? And Wisconsin saw that as kind of a polite way of saying we'd like you not to exist as a separate yes. synod. And it, it, you know, it finally came to a, a point of discussion at a joint conference where the Missouri leader said, well, maybe if you don't join us, it's because you don't really love us. And our leader jumped up and said, just because we love you doesn't mean we have to marry you. And that was kind of the prevailing mood for a long time. Um, but uh, it, it, many Missouri pastors went to the Wisconsin prep school in Saginaw and um, the, the families were very inter, interconnected and we admired Missouri for what they could do, but we probably also leaned on them too much. And one of the great changes came when we finally did break that we did more publishing and did more mission work. And all of that was, was to our benefit really, as it turned out. So a large part of your book um, is necessarily focused on offering a detailed and thorough documentation of the various views held within Wisconsin and Missouri. And you do a fair share of quoting official publications um, and also just personal uh, views. Now, church and ministry was and, and remains an area where there hasn't been um, complete agreement between the two synods. But I think you've concluded, and correct me if you're wrong, that the church and ministry wasn't really a factor at all for, for that split. That was uh, kind of evidence that we don't always see things the same way, but no one was really upset about that. Well, I think there was probably a hope on both sides that we would get to that and keep talking about it till we came to more of an agreement. I mean, my advisor said maybe the whole debate over church ministry was the antagonism between Franz and August Pieper writ large, and maybe if they would both die and get out of the way, we could talk about this. I mean, some people would argue that the issues over scouting and church fellowship really are church and ministry issues. And it's also probably true that while you could say there was a Wisconsin position and a Missouri position on church and ministry, uh, there were some people in each synod that practiced the other church's doctrine, or let's say practice. So a Wisconsin pastor could say, well, I believe the teachers have a divine call. They could be kind of dictators in their own church as far as how they ran things. Um, but Missouri and Wisconsin were agreed in the early 20th century that you only pray together with those whom you have already determined you are in agreement with. Now that conversation was almost exclusively about what representatives of the church bodies in public sessions would do with each other. And it, it, there was one particular meeting with other Lutheran synods where one of the Ohio synod men said, well, the reason we aren't making any progress at these meetings is because we don't pray to God, ask God for his blessing. And the Missouri guy said, well, that's the whole point of this conversation. We have to come to agreement first. This is something which a lot of other, most other Christians and maybe a lot of other Lutherans have a hard time getting into. As the 30s and 40s wore on and as these meetings discussed this issue, what became clear was that uh, Wisconsin was assuming that this practice of fellowship and not praying or um, taking communion together 
would not only apply to public meetings, but would also apply to individual relationships. If you are a member of the Missouri Synod and I'm of the Wisconsin Synod, we would assume that we both believe what our churches teaches and therefore there are some elements we should resolve before we would be together. That really became, I would say, the biggest sticking point for the 1950s between the two church bodies. And I think it's often been caricatured as the Wisconsin Synod is so narrow that they won't even let you play, pray with your grandma if she's not in your church body, which was really never what we intended to say. Um, that I found complicated, but also interesting because of course I grew up in the Synod and I heard all the stereotypes about we couldn't pray with anybody that came out. And so I got the chance to examine them. And some of our, our church publications didn't really say that. In fact, they actually said the circumstances maybe that you should practice fellowship more vigorously with someone who's not in the fold to try to win them over. Uh, it's, it is complex. But what I wanted to do was I had to finally get six binders and lay all the resolutions and papers out in order because the people who lived through this always had a sense of what had just happened, what they were waiting for, and what was going to happen next. And until I could kind of pull that apart like an accordion, I could not follow the story. So that's what I did. Yeah, and I think you found, um, at least the way you presented it in the book, was you picked each issue and followed that the thread of that issue, and then you, you kind of all came to the same place one way or the other. So you mentioned prayer fellowship. I, I'd like to talk more about that in a minute, but I think one of the earlier items you picked up um, was the military chaplaincy as being, again, a, a fellowship uh, issue, but in, in that specific context. Can you tell us about um, how the chaplaincy in the military served as a, a further wedge between uh, Wisconsin and Missouri? Yeah, well, as it happened for the first 65 years of the both Synod's history and the Synodical Conference formation, we weren't in very many wars. As it turned out, Missouri, President Walther um, uh, agreed with sending a, a, he did have a, a chaplain that would minister to the Lutheran guys in some of the camps. Um, Wisconsin was ready to send somebody to the Spanish-American War. By the time he got there, the war was over. But Wisconsin's argument was, if we would not worship or pray together with Lutherans with whom we were not in fellowship, such as the Ohio Synod and the Iowa Synod and the East Coast Lutherans, we would have the same reasons not to do that during times of warfare. Now that was still Missouri's official position during World War I, but there was some agitation already in parts of Missouri to say, we should go and be part of the military chaplaincy because it's better to be there than not be there. We can, we can you know, watch the synodical lines and we can show people that we're willing to serve people. But then that war was over. Well, by 1935, Missouri was saying there's gonna be a war. And so their president said, we are going to encourage our pastors to uh, become military chaplains. Wisconsin said, what's really changed? What has changed that makes this different than then? And really that question was never answered. And so while Wisconsin, um, would say that we're gonna be in the position to have to pray and have church services with all kinds of other uh, church bodies. The chaplain would have to have a whole shelf full of different service books from other churches. Missouri maintained that they didn't cross fellowship lines, but it was a wonderful experience for those pastors and Missouri showed that it was a much more outgoing and uh, forward-looking church body. 
And um, I've I've still talked to Missouri Synod pastors who are chaplains today, and they say, if anything, the government is far more, uh, what should I say, uh, sympathetic to, maybe that's not the right word, aware of the various differences of lots of church bodies and try to respect that. So, um, and of course, this is really unpopular in Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. um, you know, not only did our pastors have an exemption from being in the military, they weren't even going to go and, you know, be chaplains there. And, uh, um, and you know, when I talked to some of the my people in uh, my surveys, they told stories that were much closer down to earth about how bothered this one, one man who had been in, in the military and became a pastor said, if it weren't for the Baptists over there, I think I wouldn't be a Christian. And um, so that was not a, po and, and the same thing with scouting, it was not a popular thing to be against scouting because of its religious premises. Um, it's almost hard to talk about this today because now scouts have such bigger and more awful problems than you know, praying with the Methodists. But, but the same principles kind of applied. And as this went along, there was a sense in Wisconsin that is, is Big Sister changing on us? Um, can we count on them? Whereas Missouri, Kind of wanted to get us like like we were the little sister. They kind of wanted to kick us off their their ankles and say we've got bigger things to do and you're holding us back. And I speak as a Wisconsin guy, so maybe that's a little bit biased, but that's that's the way I kept hearing it. Yeah, so that's a, that's a perception. So just to clarify again for the chaplaincy and then again for the the Boy Scouts, these were official organizations and uh, systems that were basically that maybe this is where the church and ministry thing plays in again they were outside of the church's control uh, on yeah. one hand um and these are situations where uh basically uh, there's there's room for false doctrine to to creep in one way or the other i think that, that that's the concern right um well in originally. both cases one of the things one of the points they made was that uh, for example the chaplains are appointing and hiring ministers aside of the call of the congregation, but it was also that um, if, if there were differences of doctrine, um, some of our leaders said that, that the scouts are kind of a nurturing bed for later on belonging to lodges where they say all the religions are the same and uh, God is the one God of everybody. And yet on Sundays, these same kids are going to a church where they're hearing that Christ is the only way to be saved. And they said that just fosters confusion, if nothing else. Yeah. So you bring up some other cases that were kind of uh, turning points uh, as far as this fellowship issue was concerned. You brought up, uh, I guess, what you call the Brooks case or the, or the Brooks case. Could you tell us a bit about that? Well, uh, he was a very bright young Missouri Synod pastor and missionary who was called to India. And on the way to India, it's hard, hard even to imagine this today, but I, he stopped at Beirut and uh, was in a, I think a Methodist mission house and went to dinner with them and joined in their devotion. And there must've been a high level of spying in the Missouri Synod because people found out about this. And when he got to India, they said, you had done the wrong thing. And um, Missouri's teaching and Wisconsin's was premised on the assumption that Romans 16 says, watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way and stay away from them. That that involved any kind of disagreement of doctrine. 
whether it was a major doctrine or not. And Brooks, who was a bright guy, studied it and said, I don't think we should understand that passage that way. It should only be about teachings that really get at the heart of Christianity and deny the value of the person of Christ. Now, um, when he came back home from India, they wouldn't let him go back. And he was supposed to meet with a review committee of Concordia Seminary, and they basically said, ah, we can't be instructed on this. We're not going to listen to you anymore. And he spent most of his very gifted life as a librarian in Racine, Wisconsin. But by the 1960s, Missouri changed some of its wording on church fellowship, and even, even um, critics said, we have essentially adopted the Brooks point of view. Now, that would be another thing that Wisconsin could point to, which would make them say, you're changing here. What's happening to this relationship? Uh, we don't know. And, and it, you couldn't, uh, I think all the way through the story, you couldn't tell who really spoke for Missouri. Um, was it the old guys who had been taught a certain way? Was it the new young men coming out of seminary? A great danger was whether some of the younger professors at St. Louis had gone to grad school in Europe or you know, on the East Coast, and they came back with different ideas. And so, um, and what we, we felt we weren't being talked to. And so the sense, I think, is that Wisconsin felt an ongoing sense of uh, dismissiveness and betrayal on the part of Missouri. And I know that today, when the synods are talking with each other, but not in fellowship settings, the Missouri guys are saying, we had no idea that you had this sense of being kind of abandoned by us. And that kind of surprised me too. Um, I just want to ask, how did Wisconsin register its concerns with Missouri? There, probably, there should have been a, a mechanism for that, right, within the synodical conference. For oh, those there concerns. were there were plenty of mechanisms, yeah. And and at, at a certain point, I don't think anything new happened after about 1945, because the sides were drawn as far as the chaplaincy and and scouting. And um, uh, Missouri said that there's a difference between praying with someone as a witness versus praying in agreement. and But after that, it was a matter of each side trying to convince the other. And Wisconsin would be very precise and organized and insistent on every minute point. And Missouri, while they would state their case, I feel they kind of blew them off. I think I think the, um, the best example is, oh, well, and then, and then I had to point out too that there were always these conflicting schedules when they met. So Wisconsin would meet every odd year, Missouri every three years, and then there was mm -hmm. the Synodical Conference, which was a representative conference. So there always would be more Missouri pastors than all the other three church bodies so they could vote anything down that they would disapprove of. But in 1954, there was one maybe last chance. And our professor, our who ended up being my church history professor, he wrote a very detailed, doctrinal, biblically-laced um, presentation about why we have disapproved of the chaplaincy movement and then the Missouri guy basically played, played to people's emotions and said, these guys are sleeping their last night on American soil and they're going to go and, you know, fly bomber flights into Italy and they're going to, many of them are going to die. And I'm certainly not going to um, refuse them communion, no matter what church body they belong to, because they belong to a larger fellowship with God in heaven, which, of course, is the kind of presentation that wins a lot of people over. But it, 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 it kind of blew off the concern that Wisconsin showed. And by 1954, can you imagine the four church bodies in the Synodical Conference had two separate opening services oh, wow. <laughs> in two different places. And, and you know, there was, there was shouting on the convention floor and people booing others down. 
and you think, what in the world has happened here over 20 or 25 years that brought these bodies from where they were in the 20s and praising each other to where, how they got there now? And so whenever uh, someone just today said to me, I really enjoyed your book. And I said, it's a hard book to enjoy. I think when you see it, what a kind of a sad story it is. Um, and it's the kind of thing that can happen in other church bodies, too, over other issues. But the behavior can be somewhat the same. Yeah, so that kind of leads me to another thought. I noticed there is basically this tension between uh, liberalism and, and legalism, kind of two two L's on either end. Is, is that a yeah. fair way to, to, to see that the fears that were, you know, perhaps many on the Missouri side were fearing uh, uh, legalism? maybe with that uh, chaplaincy example, and then uh, many in Wisconsin were fearing that liberalism, whereas you could throw parts of the Bible out the window when it's inconvenient or, or whatever. Is well, those would be the words that each one would use the their particular L word against the other one. Uh -huh. All through the history of Missouri said, we really have conservatives and moderates in our church body. I mean, real liberals, they're in other church bodies, but by the 1970s, it was it was hard to tell about some of that. Um, Wisconsin insisted that their insistence upon having firm um, fellowship principles was not legalism, but there was a there, there were different attitudes in Wisconsin by the early 1950s, and there the question resolved. And all right, we should be patient with Missouri, but how for how long? And there was a group that felt we were way too slow. Um, to make a break, and there comes a point as if we don't stand up and, and make a break, then we're really guilty of in, encouraging them. And uh, I, I, I really sympathize with Oscar Nauman, who was the new synod president as of 53, and he said, it's very hard to determine what an entire church body thinks. We should be more patient, more loving, exhaust more efforts to try to win them over. Now, not many people in Missouri were all that excited about being won over. But, you know, as I've talked about this, even since the book has been done, I would say that we often talk about the synods as sister synods and all the pictures of synods. But when the synods were falling apart in the 1950s, I think a better metaphor is a bad marriage. <coughs> and you have a couple who's been married for 30 years and they've got children and grandchildren and property and many, many shared memories. They typically will work a lot longer and harder to spare that marriage. Whereas if you were single and just dating and you met the same person, you would say, there's way too many things that are gonna be a problem to our relationship. And so there were some in Wisconsin that said, if you don't break in 1955, if you, if you recognize Missouri as an erring church body, but you don't act, then you're wrong too. And that's the, the beginning of the formation of the Church of the Lutheran Confession, which is a small but very adamant church body about about that view. And I, and I think you pointed out they they had basically said, well, if you declare uh, the Missouri Synod to be officially, was it heterodox or was it an erring yeah. an erring church body? Then yeah, you can, yeah. Then you then you need to treat it as one as soon as you declare it that way. And it, and they they didn't have that window of of loving patience. They didn't see that as part of the application. Well. Yeah, you know, sometimes the, uh, the illustration they would use is uh, if you tell a person, uh, if, if, if a pastor does admonition with a man who's living with someone outside of marriage, they say, yeah, I realize it's wrong. I want to fix this in two years. They would say, well, how sincere is that? 
course, that illustration doesn't work the same way today because we have, I don't know how you guys do it. There's so much more living together before marriage. I don't know how pastorally, lovingly you do it. I didn't have to live through that so much. Yeah, I, I think the, <laughs> yeah, and, and the other, and this goes to another point you, you brought up, uh, Wisconsin, you, you notice there's a tendency, many people try to treat the Bible as this encyclopedia or textbook where there's this case you know, there, there's a problem. You look up the right passage. There's the the instant solution, and whether mm-hmm. that's with that illustration um, that you mentioned, uh, the pastors deal with, or with the the synods, uh, how long do you wait um, to have those have the consequences fall um, when you declare that there's been an, an erring church body? Right? There's no uh, other than the the Matthew 18, where some people were going by the three strikes and you're out. Um, yeah, but you know, we would keep we, we would keep our eyes on every Missouri Synod action, every convention, every statement of a leader. And when Wisconsin saw some reason to think, well, maybe they're going to, you know, come back to some of their positions, or maybe they're going to discipline some of the pastors or professors who seem to be uh, teaching and preaching things that are different than the Synod says, and are and and are not called to account. I. I think, and this is my opinion, I think that the Missouri Senate President John Bankin was willfully ignorant of some of the things going on in his church body. He just was didn't want to see this happen in his church body. And he says, I don't believe there's been any change. And, and then Wisconsin would, much like the newspaper Christian News, they would point out chapter and verse, you know, and kind of kind of beat all the logic and the organization into try to beat it into them. And the Missouri publications were smoother, and you know they were. Some of the writers would wonder if we need to be psychoanalyzed. Were we? What would have happened to us? And um, even the argument that many church bodies in the late 19th and early 20th centuries went through a stage where there are people that questioned if the Bible was inspired, or should we read the Bible more as a, a you know mythology or a folk legend? And Missouri said, well, you know, Wisconsin has been so isolated up there, and there are few churches in the North Woods. They just haven't had to deal with this the way Missouri did, which may sound as though it's an attempt to understand, but it can also be pretty condescending. Yeah, um, you wouldn't under kind of the, the you wouldn't understand, right? So yeah, yeah, you, you that, can't that tell us it. what yeah. to do. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> going back to that um, that marriage illustration you used with the you're going to put more work in um, if the marriage is going south. I have heard someone else explain this whole situation being. Uh, there's another woman, right? Uh, Missouri went to the dance with Wisconsin, but tried to walk away with the ALC by the end of the yeah. night. And, I, and can we talk well, about that? The American well, you know, that's Church? Sort of a, that's a tragic story in its own way, because this was what Missouri wanted to do. Um, and, and the ALC had been formed um, from three church bodies, which had come in some ways quite close to all being in fellowship with the Synodical Conference only a couple of years before. So to Missouri's point of view, they said, well, um, let's um, try to resume those talks now with the new ALC. And so Missouri operated with a document called the Brief Statement, which had every doctrine that they taught. And their view was the ALC has to, any other church body has to agree with what we wrote here. So the ALC says, well, we agree with it the way we understand it. And they wrote a, a parallel document that showed they didn't agree with some of it. <laughs> and Wisconsin said, how can you have two church bodies, or in this case, three or four, saying we're all in agreement with each other and each have their own document? 
which you know we find out doesn't work in politics either. And so there was an effort for the next 20 years to come up with a document that they could all agree on. And, and they, they could not come up with one. But after 30 years of effort and many changes in Missouri's culture and by letting loose of Wisconsin and its you know, admonitions against them, in 1969, they finally declared fellowship with the ALC. It was a very close vote. The vote that Missouri had to be in fellowship with ALC was much uh, closer than the vote of Wisconsin to break from Missouri, so it wasn't real popular. And within a matter of a few months, the ALC announced that they were going to ordain women in the ministry, which was Missouri has never done. So almost immediately after they got this, they had problems with it. And the actual relationship of Missouri and the ALC lasted like 12 years. And they broke fellowship. And when talks came to put together the mammoth ELCA, um, a part of Missouri left to join that group, but Missouri as a whole did not. Um, Missouri's present president, Matt Harrison, is far removed from the viewpoint of Missouri's leadership, the one together with the ALC. But, you know, what happened in the 50s and 60s really did realign American Lutherans into probably in many cases more the church body the men ought to be in, in terms of their their beliefs and practices. But it's been painful, I think, all the way around. Now, in your book, you've mentioned, and because this is a history podcast, especially, you said both sides appealed to history to justify their views and practices, especially of church fellowships. What were these two competing historical narratives? Well, Missouri said that back in Walther's day, here's where um, um, Peter Prang's book is so good. There were all these different struggling sort of Lutheran synods, you know, back in the countryside and in this state and that state and travel was slow. And Missouri, uh, Walther initiated a bunch of free conferences where people could come. And if they said they follow the Augsburg Confession as a correct statement of scripture, they could come. And Walther was willing in certain cases to pray with them, to preach in their pulpit. And um, so Missouri said, that's the way we were back in the beginning. And then we tightened up in the 20s and 30s to be more rigid. And so what we are doing is reclaiming in some ways the same spirit that Walther had to try and reach out to church bodies um, that were that were struggling. Wisconsin would say, look, the ALC is not struggling at this point. Those, those days are over. In fact, Wisconsin ended up using a, a very unfortunate term in today's language. They called that 1850s time the period of groping, which is hard even to read today. But they said, they, they said, uh, they said that was a time when these churches themselves were not sure where they were, and we could, you know, try to help them. Uh, but it's not the case now in the 1940s. The LCA, the ALC, were very clear in their their, their statements about scripture and about fellowship and other issues. We know where they stand, and they're they're no longer asking for help or for uh, what should I say for for support. Um, and so it isn't the same situation. So Wisconsin said Missouri's changing their fellowship practice, and Missouri said no, we're actually going back to where we were before. They would even Missouri some Missourians would even say we went through a period of where we were too rigid and legalistic, and now we're getting more of a sense of the freedom of the gospel. And that's something we don't agree on now. I've given papers at Missouri Senate conferences, and that difference in understanding is still out there. Yeah. 
so in your opinion, you could decline if you want, but who do you think was right about their historic uh, perception on well, what was going on back? It's not something you really get into in the book, but do you have an opinion on that? No, no. Well, I had not to get into that because my dissertation was 700 pages long, my draft. And one of my readers said, you got to cut a lot of this stuff out in the beginning or they're not going to get to the problem till page 300. I had a lot more of that stuff, but I, I, I continue to marvel at the magnanimous, magnanimous nature of Walther. That we think of him, and both sides think of him as such a sturdy, insistent person on doctrinal truth, but he could be so patient with these, these I mean, the early pastors that came over hardly had any training. They had <clears throat> very little sense of what was the proper way to even deal with other churches. They're pretty rough characters. And he really tried hard to win them over. But then Walther's attitude, which we believe is Wisconsin's too, is that when people reveal themselves persistently to be unwilling to accept what scripture says, then Romans 16 and other passages say we should break. And so I, I would like to see young historians like you do a lot more disinterested history to not go in with a preconceived notion of what you're gonna find to defend your group but to go in more and more to find out what do these guys all really say and how were they treated? And, uh, but you know, by the 1940s, the church bodies all were pretty set on where they were. And, and so you really couldn't treat them the way they were treated 80 years before, like they're trying to find their way. But there's no question in my mind that at least a portion of Wisconsin through its last 50 years um, has been too rigid in terms of saying every person I meet if he's not a member of this church body, he's he's an unwilling er errorist who doesn't want to change. And I think we especially have to be careful about that today when so many people don't know what their own church body teaches, where there is not, you know, synodical or uh, denominational loyalty. I think we have to be more patient. I mean, I find this as a college professor with students that are not Lutheran. I need to try to be more patient with them and, you know, tell them what we're about instead of sort of summarily dismissing them because, you know, he's a Baptist or something. Let's talk. And as long as you're willing to talk, we can carry, I mean, I, mean, I may not come and preach in your church, but we can work at arriving at that. So Wisconsin has to be careful that it tries to keep this balance also. Yeah, watch out for the the L word for, for legalism, right? So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you brought that out well in the book too, just where, um, yeah, there maybe was a conclusion, an official resolution, but so many people had their own um, public and private concerns about how this would all be applied once once the Wisconsin Synod said this is what, um, you know, the unit concept of fellowship looks like. Well, and, and I think with the, the teaching of fellowship itself and my difficulty with, well, where does the doctrine of the word fit in? Once the book was published and some of my older brothers in the ministry read it, they wanted to talk to me and they said, you know, I never believe the unit concept. And these are some pretty significant names in our church body's history. I never believed it. I, I felt it was almost impossible to deal with. Um, I found that uh, I, I felt I, I should practice the, what I felt was the right thing to do. And I would not have voted if I were a delegate against breaking with Missouri over fellowship. But uh, we were concerned about was, what was happening with the faculty at St. Louis. And it seemed as though some of the faculty members were almost intent on demonstrating how much they were going to challenge Missouri Synod 
document history. And many of them did end up in the ELCA. But they said, we don't know what's going to happen there. And if we don't, if they don't have um, a board of control and a Senate president who's going to challenge them and that they could lose their calls if they were not faithful to the teaching, then we don't know what to think. And that was really dangerous to them. So that, that was quite a surprise. Now, usually they swore me to silence and they would say, now don't tell, tell anybody who said this, but they said it was not that, it was not that clear with fellowship. But our concern um, that there were Missouri pastors who said, um, one of them even said, and it was published in a Sunday magazine, uh, Easter Sunday, I should say, um, a newspaper, if they found the bones of Jesus in a grave, it would not bother me at all because Christ is still alive in, our, in your heart. Well, that's a serious attack on a basic doctrine of scripture. And it's the kind of thing that the average person can read on the yeah. church page and be really bothered about. And St. Louis and, and the Missouri Center went through a tremendous upheaval in the 70s. And to be where they are now, as far back as they are is, I mean, many of us just really rejoice at that even though who knows if we'll ever be able to do church again or not, but we're, we're at least happy cousins with each other, if not sisters. We've used pretty much every family metaphor out there. We'll, we'll yeah, I think we'll, so, yeah. <laughs> no weird uncles, we hope, but... Uh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and, and it, just to throw another one out there, I've heard um, we were kind of the ugly stepsister kind of feeling was another one too, where... For a while, uh, in the illustration you used, uh, Wisconsin was the anchor holding back the uh, cruise ship that was going full speed into progress in modern America, right? Uh, kind of that resentment towards towards Wisconsin, yeah. too. Well, that well that was that that metaphor was used on both sides in Missouri. There were a lot of conservatives yet in Missouri that lamented when we broke fellowship because they said, "You are an anchor for us." And President Toppy, who always wrote the editorials, he said. We're not going to be a dragged anchor. I mean, if the progressive side of Missouri wants to advance and we're, you know, an obstacle to them, well, then they're going to go their own way. But really, one of the most fun parts to read for me was the um, the responses of the old pastors when I asked them how things changed in Wisconsin since 1961, and there were serious fears among many of them that we could not survive without Missouri. But as it happened, there was a baby boom going on there. I was part of that generation. We, there were so many of us that they had to build new residence halls at every college, huge class sizes. And more guys wrote and were published. And, and one of the pastors said, it was like being a little kid and taking your swimmies off and finding out you could swim without them. We could make it without Missouri. And um, so as Wisconsin, um, open missions in other parts of the country and had record-sized classes and open mission fields in other parts of the world. Tremendous amount of self-confidence at that time. Missouri was going through this terrible rupture and nowhere in print did I ever find any Wisconsin person kind of, um, you know, tisking them and saying, yeah, too bad, you should have listened to us. Maybe some people privately felt that way, but every, every expression was just great sadness to see this great church body that we had so loved and admired and worked with side by side to go through this was just really painful to these men. Um, that was, that's really heart, heartrending to read some of that. So as Wisconsin was working through this process, um, going back into the fifties now, what were some of those efforts to clarify the, and solidify that doctrine of fellowship, especially that prayer concept? 
Well, I, I don't know if I could even name all of them. I know that there was an official letter sent by the Wisconsin president to the Missouri president, and then they had discussed it in con convention, and Wisconsin thought it was a very fair rendering. What Wisconsin complained about is, all right, you haven't really arrived at fellowship officially with the ALC, but you keep on having meetings and gatherings and church services together as though you were resolved. Uh, President Brenner said that there are numerous, how do you put it? So it's, it's a little twisted turn of phrase, but he said, you, you continue to practice fellowship in anticipation of a union which has not been realized. And of course, Missouri would say, ah, you know, that's okay. It wasn't such a big deal. We all got along well. Um, in early, the early 1950s, Wisconsin published a series of 10 uh, tracts, eight-page tracts on the different topics to explain themselves. And I think every Wells pastor ought to read tract number 10 about how broad Wisconsin was about trying to help people who are still struggling um, to, to, to pray, act, actually to practice fellowship more vigorously with them as long as they are willing to listen, to not automatically close the door. I think a lot of Wells pastors might give some second thought to a few things they've done in the past. And then there was a fraternal word and a fraternal thing examined in a counter. Uh, I, I can't tell you all the ones there. But the drama comes when, when the Senate conventions come and there was always a, a convention committee on church fellowship, church affairs, but there was a standing committee also. So the, uh, the convention committee would, they sometimes get to the convention three, four days before the convention started and talk about this stuff day and night. And so in 1955, the uh, convention floor committee said, we are going to recommend to the delegates that they break with Missouri. But one of them says, well, said, one of them said, well, we think we ought to talk to one of the professors on the standing committee to see what they say. And this person on the standing committee said, let's give them more time. We saw some positive things. So they actually came with a split recommendation to the Synod. So one of the, the majority said, let's split. The minority said, let's not. And they put up to a vote and the, the resolution to split failed by 16 votes. Well, now you've really got the ground for the formation of the CLC in time because it came to a clear vote and they said no. And then it crystallized about 1960 where the two union committees met and um, one of the people said, from our side said to Missouri, how do you consider fellowship? Do you consider it as a, either you are or you aren't? Or do you consider it somewhat like a ladder where the higher you go, the more in agreement you are with each other, like levels of fellowship? And Missouri said, we like the ladder. Wisconsin said, we think it's all or nothing, the so-called unit concept. That was in May of 1960. And from there, it was just a matter of time before the two church bodies met in convention um, uh, to resolve it. And then the real heartbreak story comes in with Martin Fransman. The Fransman family had grown up in the Wisconsin Synod. Martin had taken a call to Concordia. He was maybe the most gifted poetic scholar that the Synodical Conference ever had. Year after convention after convention, Missouri would send Martin as an observer to our convention. He'd always take the microphone and say, please give us more time. Please be patient with us. So what did Wisconsin do in 61? They chose his brother Werner to be the a chairperson of the floor committee on church fellowship. And after Martin pleads uh, that, that we don't break yet, Werner says we have gone the last step we can. Now a sterner kind of admonition is needed. And I talked to more people who just, they wept over that because they, you know, they, they, they had Martin in class. They'd had 
uh, they knew who Werner was. And then a third brother, <laughs> Gerhardt, was one of my professors in Watertown. When I did the survey with him, he said, that was so hard. I love them both. They're, they're still in my family. And so there was the, 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 the dramatic and the personal side of this. Uh, the story sounds like a lot of dry, dead old Germans arguing with each other, but there was a, <coughs> a strongly held sense of great loss. Yeah, it, like you said, it, it, that marriage uh, illustration works well. It's like a, a love that, that fell apart. and Pain, Painfully well, yeah. And yeah. so now we're kind of at the point where the sinners are saying, well, you know, you've paid a hard price for this divorce, but you're looking kind of nice again. Should we talk? And <laughs> and I think some of our younger pastors, I've done a couple of conferences with them, and I think they're overly optimistic that this is going to all be resolved pretty soon. The last time I talked to Matt Harrison, the president of the Missouri Synod, he said, you guys were right to break with us. That was the only choice we left yeah. you. We kind of went out of our head for a while. And he said, don't be in any hurry to come back. We have way too many things to fix on our own plate before. Yeah. I mean, there's the marriage metaphor right there without the word. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I just recently talked to another Missouri Senate official, and he just flat up said, especially with recent stuff, you guys are totally right about that whole Boy Scout <laughs> thing you know so that's that's not an issue anymore and yeah it is interesting how this past uh month uh president harrison spoke at, at our, our well synod convention first time in many decades i believe that that's anything like that i happened. think so and so. you've probably heard about the outside of fellowship gatherings that they're open to everybody yeah and i remember the, the first one i went to in, in new almond there was president schrader and president harrison sitting with each other at dinner having a good laugh. And then they're both amateur musicians. They play a little music together. And I thought, we have not seen anything like that in at least 80 years. Yeah. And what a sight that is. So, um, but you know, just to go back to something I said before, um, I think it was helpful that I did not have an oar in the water, so to speak, to, to defend my great grandfather's actions or something. And um, when my book was reviewed in one place, it was a retired Wells pastor who said, nobody from my generation could have written this. There was just too much emotion involved. And I think it is, the story is inherited a different way by people who didn't live through it in the same way. I mean, my life just went on. I was at a giant Wells church and nothing changed for me, but other people didn't have that experience. So we talked about the kind of the emotional, the personal side, and now kind of the uh, the way things are now, at least on the the official level, we got a, a two hundred sixty year old Senate sisters looking at each other and saying, "Huh, I guess we have have a lot in common still." But uh, as you said, too optimistic to say anything's going to happen anytime soon. But uh, what are some other long term impacts uh, of that split upon the Wisconsin Senate itself? Has it gone through a cultural change, an identity crisis? What did you find? I, I wouldn't say that. I think that there has been, some people would debate with me on this, there has been a segment of the Wells Ministerium who is practicing fellowship more tightly than that generation did. And it was really remarkable to find some of these documents that were written back in the 50s that in spite of all the turmoil then recommended a more open-handed fellowship for the weaker brother than what these pastors would do now. I think there's another group, however, who says, I wonder if that whole history was right. And they may try to be more open with relationships even beyond 
the old synodical conference of the Lutherans. I think they find themselves sometimes getting burned that way. You know, one of the things that happened was that there were groups that were dribbling out of the Missouri Synod all over the United States. And they were looking for, you know, an Orthodox pastor and looked, looked to Wisconsin. They felt they couldn't trust what Missouri um, was graduating. And so in the Northwest Missouri, you'd see this, you know, looking for like new mission openings. And they had names from all over the country, places. We'd never had churches in Georgia or, you know, New Mexico or wherever. And so I, I knew quite a few people who served a church that was made up largely of old Missourians who had left. And on the one hand, they could say these people were often well instructed in scripture. They were hard workers. They learned how to be energetic laymen in the Missouri Synod. There also were some cases where they were quite reactionary. And anything they saw changing in Wisconsin, they'd say, oh, that's how Missouri went. Well, they're using a new, a, a new modern translation. The pastors are wearing white gowns. You know, they got they got banners in the church, just like Missouri. So if you got some of those pastors to sit down and talk about, they may say that, that was sort of a, a mixed blessing. But I think in some of the publications that Wisconsin has done, I think especially the People's Bible, it was an energetic task to do a commentary on all of Scripture. We have all Wisconsin people who wrote for that. Um, we've done more uh, publishing in various areas. I did one of the People's Bible, and when I went to school in St. Louis for graduate school, some of these guys almost wanted my autograph because they said, we really like this stuff. No, others not. Um, and we had to stand up on our own. I think there, as I say, I think there can be some reactionary attitudes. Uh, there's an old saying that says a burnt dog doesn't just stay away from a hot stove, it stays away from every stove. And I think the generation that was in school in the early to mid-1960s Many of them decided, I'm just going to stay away from everybody who isn't in our church. And that led to some instances where they, I, I don't think they're really defending doctrine. I think some of the things they did were just plain rude. You know, they wouldn't shake a Missourian's hand or, you know, wouldn't even see him socially. But when I've listened to some of them talk, I could say, well, I can see why you might feel it's better to be safe than to be sorry. Um, I mean, today... When you see the ELCA, Missouri, and Wisconsin all do their algorithmic predictions about how long they're going to last, the predictions are that all three synods are going to be gone by the middle of the century. So, I mean, it's really, really depressing to read that stuff, especially when you look at some of the numbers about how much the Lutheran Church grew between, let's say, the 19-teens and the 1950s. Um, it was regarded by outsiders as a church that was really had a great future. And then things really unraveled in a whole bunch of places. The birth rate went down. Um, schools are not as popular. Um, time comes when people are not put up without sound doctrine. I mean, all those things play a role. But uh, Missouri has lost the equivalent of at least one Wisconsin. I think the ELC has lost the equivalency of, a, of two Wisconsin sins in size. And, uh, well, I'm sad not because of a cultural connection to this gospel, but because of the way we teach the gospel, this unconditional gospel and the value of the sacraments and um, relying on the promises of God rather than looking for emotional, you know, quaverings in our heart. These are all things, you know, I, I tell my students even, I says, you know, I was raised in, in a system where we were taught to distrust our feelings a little bit. You know, yeah, you may feel one day like I really feel God loves me. Well, that's great. 
But if the next day you don't feel like that, God still loves you just as much. So feelings are nice, but but don't live or die on them. And when I see the kind of gospel that we hear so many places, it's so much entertainment and, you know, yeah. all that, of that. It bothers me. Candy. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I know. It bothers me. That's a different subject. Yeah. Well, I was I was thinking about this too for such a long time, just being part of of, of Wells and going through the whole K through eight system and just my worldview being an adult now, I realized, huh, most people don't actually think the way I think about so many things. No, that's right. And, and part of that is just being a, a Christian um, in a sinful world. But I think part of it too is I would love to see just kind of a a social study on just Wells culture in in, in general. Because I think there is certainly a a topic and there. I don't know how to do it, but it is absolutely a distinctive subculture. We almost all of us went to school at a place that were taught by people who went to school together, by people who went to school together yeah. for about four generations. And you know, at my college, you know, we're only about 45% Lutheran now. And you can really see how people are just confused by parts of this culture. And they say, Man, this Wells thing, I just don't get it, you know. And some people stay, some people can't stay, and some people stay, but they're never part of it. And I think Cupid is still the best evangelist mm-hmm. because, you know, a few people that just couldn't get it, well, suddenly they're in love. And the girlfriend said, you got to join the Wells if you're going to marry me. And so, well, God bless that that'll work out. Yeah. Well, I think <laughs> we've uh, run through the, the historical narrative as far as this is concerned in a little uh, current commentary. Uh, our second section, a little bit shorter, uh, is just about the research and writing method. We hit a lot of that um, early on, uh, but let's just talk about it now in, in some detail. So how did you go about writing on this topic? What was your research method? Well, let me just say, if I didn't know then what I know now, because I have a massive collection, electronic stuff in all different categories, and um, it took me a lot longer to get this all put together, the old-fashioned way of having stuff in piles and boxes and trying to arrange it. But um, I just, there's a wonderful uh, dissertation written by, he's retired now from, sometimes he was at New Orleans, sometimes at Bethany. And he looked at the arguments of Christian news versus the American Lutheran from a rhetorical point of view, which was just when that stuff was heating up in the 40s and 50s. And I just started following the footnotes. And by following the footnotes, I got myself into the official stuff and found the difference between the the more moderate side of Missouri and the American Lutheran Publicity Bureau and the confessional Lutheran one. But it still took me much longer than it would today to try to put this together, because now I could organize all the various parts of the paper by separate file folders and throw an extra electronic copy in here and there and work with two screens. And um, it took me a long time. And I just kept writing. My, my, my doctoral advisor happened to be in Russia quite a bit. And he would say to me, I can't be there much, but just keep writing because you can always throw stuff out. So this thing got to be so long and unwieldy that finally it was the one of the readers who said, you, you, you got to boil some of this down. And in boiling it down, you will engage the reader more. You know? Kind of a refinement uh, process, right? You, you put a lot out well, there and you it, save the it, 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 it really Yeah, it really is. And you... you I mean, yeah, you can be thorough, but if you're not taking people with you, um, <laughs> why do it? Yeah. So, and then when I was just about done, uh, many doctoral programs have what they call a dissertation lady, 
somebody who's maybe an English teacher for 70 years and you have to pay her to go through the whole thing for every comma and semicolon and dangling modifier. As it turns out, St. Louis's modif uh, dissertation woman broke her hip and had to have surgery. So they said to me, well, okay, we're gonna accept it, but you gotta find a different editor to go through this. And it turned out they found me the wife of one of the professors who was an editor at Concordia Publishing House. And she said to me after she read it, she said, it read like a detective novel. And that was really music to my ears because mm -hmm. I wanted to you know, grab the people as they're reading. And just when they start to think one side has got the point, then you go to the other side and kind of make their point. And so you're, I just want to be fair. And when Missouri young pastors say, you were fair, and I learned all this stuff I never knew about my church body, that's, that's the best thing I could hear. Yeah, you didn't go at the end of each chapter and just say, and these people were right, and these people were, were wrong. To, to tell the full truth, one of the editors at the publishing house actually said this in a meeting. I'm not sure he didn't say clearly enough that we were right. Now, I only know that because I had a spy who would tell me what, what their conversations were. And my only comment to him was, we've been telling people for 50 years we were right. Why don't we just give them the information and see what they say? Um, because I think it'll be more deeply felt if they come to the same conclusion. But I came to admire so many of the people on the Missouri side, not all of them, there are a couple of villains in there, I think, but admire them and their concerns too. So it was, I, I have respect for both sides. So what were some of the challenges in, in conducting your research? I think you mentioned the, just the volume of materials as part of it. Um, well, you know, I had a, I think a lot of people who finished a PhD program would say this, they also had a life going on at the same time. <laughs> and um, there were times when I would wonder how did the Wisconsin of the 1990s get to be the way it is? And so you learn some of that from the 40s and 50s, which I guess is a good thing, but that was somewhat um, difficult. Um, I just, uh, for me, I knew that I'd have to try to finish a terminal degree to keep my job. But at every step, I didn't know if I could do it. I mean, I'd, I'd grown up mostly inside that Wells bubble. Can I go to a much bigger graduate school like St. Louis? I went to Chicago for a class. Then can I do all these languages and pass all these, all these qualifiers? And then I had written, but never anything on that level. Could I hold this all together? So I was not assured at all that I could really finish this. So, <coughs> That was a challenge. Now, I don't know if this is a fair question, but I thought I'd ask, are you aware of any criticisms of your book? And if so, what are they? How do you respond to them? Uh, I haven't heard about too many. I'm, I'm sure that there are some. I mean, uh, some people just don't like what I found. They're not angry with me, but they just, this was what this was about. I'll never forget giving a talk about the research before I was done with the book at a fairly large group of people in the Milwaukee area. And one high school, a mother with a high school aged daughter came to me and said, I am so ashamed to find out that this is what the Synod split over. And I would leave the Wisconsin Synod today, except my daughter is still in the Lutheran High School choir in our area and she wouldn't be allowed to sing in our church. She said, we went to all that effort and, and a struggle over that. And that was really shocking. I, 
I had a family member who just thought this was the most awful thing to study. Oh, the Wisconsin Synod, oh, these old pastors. And finally I said to her, look, there are people that do dissertations on Hitler too. That doesn't mean they like him, but they're trying to understand him better. Um, I don't want to name any names, but I think there are some people in some places. I mean, if they, if they, as long as they say it's fair, they don't have to like it. Um, one professor at St. Louis just didn't like the title of Tale of Two Sinners at all because he said, it sounds like it's a fictional work. <laughs> and actually, I chose it more because it would fit on the binding of the of the book. <laughs> it was a real, I mean, if you've ever find the, the original dissertations, these long six-syllable words. Yeah. And the woman who bound all the dissertations of St. Louis said, I'll never get at that on the binding. And I says, well, we've kind of talked about it as a Tale of Two Sinners. And she said, perfect. <laughs> so that, that was that. <laughs> You do sometimes judge a book by a cover, so you have to keep that in mind. Yeah, and I should say I had nothing to do with the picture on the cover, but I think it really captured something. Yeah, tell me what it is. I don't even know what it is. It's a picture of of, of a sort of a yeah, post-World War II neighborhood, you mm -hmm. know, kind of modest houses, the church in the distance. And what gets me is the lawn furniture. That's what I remember when I was a kid. And so you look at it and you imagine that one house is a Missouri guy, the next one's a Wisconsin guy. Okay. And the church is eventually going to have make them leave them to have disagreements. I mean, it seems to feel it feels like leave it to Beaver, kind of with some danger in it. Kind of rocking the the peaceful suburban world, huh? Of the well, yeah, and the for Lutheran families, the peaceful yeah. church world too. Yeah, yeah. All right, and this is my last thing. More of an observation with kind of a curious question and. It's kind of an odd question, but I'm just curious. So I've noticed, especially in that earlier sections of the book, um, that I was already aware or had heard at least anecdotes or even specific phrases that you use to characterize the two synods' histories and their figures. Uh, some of this I could remember back in seventh and eighth grade catechism class, where I don't know why it just could come out as part of this is part of our history, our heritage. Uh, this is the past and this is how we view things today yeah. and of course i picked up other things in college and seminary so do you think your book reflects and and simply documents common elements of wells historical narratives or do you think it's possible that your book has, has done a large uh, role to shape wells views of history in this specific section i don't think i've done anything to shape them when i did a um, the survey of the pastors i said that there were some uh, who viewed, have said that they viewed the Missouri Synod as triumphalists and that the Wells suffered from small synoditis. Those are actually other people's terms. Some of the um, more moderate Missourians in the 60s and 70s accused Missouri of being triumphalist, which meant that they thought they were always right and that they assumed that God was on their side. And today, um, and they certainly made their case, but today there are more Missourians who kind of are embarrassed at that and say, we have to be careful not to be triumphalists that we're always right. So I simply threw back at them the term that I had heard people say. And I had heard that way back that, um, uh, you know, one of my professors had been in the Missouri Synod when he talked about the beloved Synod, you know, he talked in a way that Wisconsin guys never talked about how much he loved his church body that way. Um, small Synoditis was a phrase that President Toppy used right at the time we were going to break in an editorial where he was afraid that it was small synoditis was a kind of a, a sort of a woe is me kind of an attitude. We can't do anything. We don't have this or that. And he said, we have lots going for us, but we have to get over that. It's almost like being in Milwaukee and 
having Chicago down the road. There's this persistent inferiority complex about everything that people can have. I think those were both there all along. Now, there were some people who said, I never heard that. And there are other people who said, man, I heard that all the time. And when I, one thing I did learn is that the feelings about the synods were quite regional. People in Nebraska felt much different than people in Western Wisconsin or Michigan. And so it was a little confusing when pastors moved and changed districts. So, <laughs> had to get used to a different cultural norm in their pastoral conference. <laughs> well, interesting. Well, that, that helps explain some things. Well, I think we're at the end of our interview time. We've gone a little bit over, but thank you for your time today. Uh, do you have any other projects, history projects that you're working on? You're in retirement now, so congratulations on that. I, I Thank you. I, I have the idea for, for a few things, um, but the project I really have to get done is something that must have happened when I stayed too long at lunch in New Orleans with some of the publishers in uh, Concordia Publishing House, and they asked me if I would do a Concordia commentary. And so I'm in the final throes of getting judges done. I've had it for two decades. I told them, you know, I'm not a Hebrew teacher. I'm going to need time. They said, we'll give you time. But so now I've got, now those are long. Those, those yeah. big blue books are, my, my draft is about 1,200 pages. Now I have to cut it down a little bit and tighten up. But it's largely done. But now I have a serious deadline in the middle of next year. So I can't feel like hardly doing anything until I can put that away. I've done some writing on the intertestamental period, and I'd like to look at a little bit more New Testament Apocrypha just to get that world that the Bible arose in. Um, I have a few ideas of things I'd like to look at in um, American Lutheran history and have written a few things that are like in Legia or Concordia Historical Institute Journal. But I'm I'm enjoying going over to the archives. They're just about five miles from my home here and just filing and scanning and looking for things and writing gets to be, I can hardly write anymore unless I am in danger of being seriously shamed to not be done. But I, <laughs> I, I love, I, I love to look for the stuff and find it. So we'll see. All right. We'll be looking forward for, for whatever you come yeah. up with next. So thank you. Thank you, Ben. All right. And tomorrow is the day, uh, the 60th anniversary of the actual vote that took place on the split there's about 20 pages of it at the end of chapter four that tell about what happened. And um, my pastor's wife took all of her kids to the gym at Wisconsin High School because she said, something historic is going to be happening there and I want you to see it. Wow, she turned out to be right. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you. God bless your ministry.